Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and this week we're discussing ethics and human rights in the modern world and in particular in the time of COVID-19. With me to explore that this week is Baroness O'Neill of Ben Garver, Nora O'Neill, philosopher, member of the House of Lords and amongst many other roles, former chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Onora, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Gavin. Very good to talk with you. So at the moment, uh, we're all, of course, in lockdown due to COVID-19. That lockdown is clearly protecting our health, but it's also restricting our freedom. In a situation like this, how can governments take proper ethical considerations when balancing different rights for different people? I think we have to realise that rights inevitably conflict. Unless you have just one right, which would perhaps be inadequate, uh, you're going to have conflicts. And you're going to have to, the phrase they usually use is qualify one right by another. So, for example, you have to limit uh, the right to security by the right to liberty, or you have to limit the right to freedom of expression by others' right to privacy. Beyond that, I think there's some controversy, but I think it's uncontroversial that, that rights are not absolute. They are qualified rights, but you have to justify the way in which you qualify them, for example, by appeal to other rights or to further considerations. And in this kind of strange period we're in, where the government's taking quite dramatic steps, how can the public give its consent? Does it need to give its consent? Probably, ultimately, we can't give our consent in any detail. Uh, My fear is that consent is tremendously important in transactions with individuals. Uh, So, for example, when you go into a shop, the way you go in is to do a transaction between you and the shopkeeper. You buy the item and pay for it. The shopkeeper hands it over. You don't rush in and grab it and leave the shop. In that way, I think we can immediately see that we assume that there has to be a qualification of the rights, that it has to be careful. We have to see in which way we can best respect a plurality of rights. And I would say rights are not the only thing, but we'll come back to that. Obviously, at some point, the government will want to remove the lockdown. And from what we hear on the news, this is likely to be gradual. And perhaps some people will be initially allowed more freedom than others. Is this something we should be concerned about? What what are the sort of implications for our rights more generally in this environment? Well, I think we've already got that situation in that key workers are allowed to go outside their homes and do anything. So we all accept that because we all depend upon, or we know someone else who depends upon their services. So differential rights are nothing new. As a matter of fact, we have it all the time. A five-year-old does not have the same freedom of movement that you have. That's probably a good thing, given what my children were like when they were five. Exactly. (laughs) So I don't think there's any case for imagining that rights are completely uniform. We do, of course, argue about what's the age at which people should be allowed to variously uh, consent to uh, medical treatment, buy fireworks, drive a car, get married. There's quite a lot of dispute across the uh, years on that. But we all accept that there should be some limit. So I can see that. Clearly, at the moment, the government is dealing with an incredibly difficult crisis, which uh, in many ways is 
asking them to take dramatic decisions quite quickly, although in some ways we all feel that everything's going quite slowly. Does the government have the processes in place to consider the rights that people are having to give up as they take some of these decisions? Or perhaps is that a role for Parliament to scrutinise government about? I have to say, I don't think parliamentary scrutiny is even feasible at present. I attended a meeting yesterday of the crossbench group, a virtual meeting, and the technologies can do wonderful things, but they certainly are not permitting parliamentary debate or voting at this stage. So scrutiny is difficult. Question time is being restored with many constraints, and that gives you an element of parliamentary scrutiny, but not that much. And do you see the debate about ethics and the ethics of our situation in COVID happening at the moment? Or is it all rather quiet on that topic? I think it's fairly quiet because there is, after all, an overwhelming case, a life and death case for protective measures. It's interesting to note that there are jurisdictions where people simply dispute that that's the situation. Some of them, I fear very much, will meet their comeuppance in that uh, there will be more infections in the areas where they live. But I think the, the reason the public accept the lockdown at present is that they can see why it's needed. It's not obscure, it's not arbitrary, and it affects people, yes, in different ways. It's different if you're a key worker, it's different if you're, uh, for example, in frail health, but on the whole, people accept it. At some stage, this crisis will pass. And we hear a lot of people uh, saying that they, they want things to get back to normal. What is normal after something so dramatic as this? And, and can we, should we get back to it? I have no idea. My, my fantasy, my thought is that people are having a fantasy when they say get back to normal. They mean it should all be nice. It should all be like it used to be. It should be like I'm used to. Well, I'm not so sure that the world of the last 20 years has been normality. It's been a world in which extraordinary changes have happened with great rapidity, huge growth of population, of prosperity, a great deal of globalization, which implies huge movements of people and goods, ever longer supply chains, ever more delicate and complicated financial and production arrangements. Was that a good thing? I don't know. Will we want to get back to it? We shall see. Have you any predictions or ideas about how things would change as we come out of this? I don't have predictions, but I do have views about what we should aim for. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has made very clear to us is that you neglect public goods at your peril. Public goods, in, uh, above all, public health, and on the other hand, environmental standards. And I think we were already well aware that we needed to take more care about environmental standards to pursue those issues more energetically, with more coordination, more international coordination. And I think the pandemic has reminded us that the same is true of human, and by the way, of animal health. Well, let's certainly hope so, because that would be a positive outcome to come out of this big sort of shock that we've, uh, we've had with yes. this virus. And I think that, that you know, 50 years ago, people were perhaps more aware they had in their lifetime 
experienced or at least heard about several epidemics, pandemics, and they had seen diseases ravage the children. Uh, For example, in the 1930s, there was still diphtheria. Then we got vaccination. Later, there was still measles. Now there are people who simply dispute the scientific evidence and imagine that the measles vaccine is harmful. There's a reason why people in the less developed world will walk for days to get their children vaccinated against measles. They have seen the ravages. So many of us have not in our adult lives seen a case of measles. That's really interesting. And that suggests that we will actually think in a different way, that we will actually appreciate the things around us in a different way because we've been exposed to this sort of shock, if you like, to the system. I hope that we may take pretty seriously both the possibility of new diseases and the importance of of universal protection against the diseases we know about and have vaccines for. We were, after all, extremely lucky that neither Ebola nor SARS uh, spread very widely since they had a very, very high death rate. Stepping away from COVID and thinking more generally about the modern world, The idea of ethical approval is now very much an integral part of publicly funded research in the UK and in in many other countries. To what extent do you think these processes of ethical approval in research work? I first came across them in detail in the medical field, and I was a founding member of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics in the early 90s. And looking back, I realized we had many advantages because there was a long tradition of medical ethics, of research ethics, and of public health ethics. And what we were facing was a set of new problems because of new medical techniques, including, of course, things like fertility treatment of of unprecedented sorts. So in a certain sense, there was some generally accepted framework, which was professionally important, and in many cases also embodied in law. It's a very different situation with the digital revolution in that we do not have an established or widely accepted ethical framework for dealing with these new technologies, and I think we have a very long way to go. Well, let's dig into that digital world a little bit. As you say, things have changed very quickly. In the last 20 years, we've gone from very, very simple digital technologies to now being ruled by them in many ways. And of course, millions of us will press that agree button to use apps or programs without really knowing what it is we're agreeing. And the the, the list of things we're agreeing is pages and pages long. How do we start to deal with this? How do we start to change things so that consent is a little bit more informed? Well, that is what people aspire to. And I think the answer is that you can't expect most of us to imbibe pages and pages of complicated information and and give and refuse consent. So the idea, which I hope has already reached its peak, but maybe I'm wrong, that you can make consent forms ever more complicated and that members of the public simply have to read the stuff and and consent or refuse consent is, I think, a non-starter. We can't read all that stuff. There was a very amusing episode a few years ago where someone issued a EULA, an end-user license agreement, which you consent to or 
I should say, consent to when you buy new software, and inserted into it a clause which said, and I promise to give my firstborn to the devil. Everybody ticked and clicked. And the point is, tick and click consent is not ethically very valuable. It's not like the sort of consent where you go into the greengrocers, pick up a cabbage and put down your money. Yes. That, that is a transaction that both parties can understand, whereas the long end-user license agreement or other equivalent form is difficult. Now, I think that what we have seen in the medical field is they've taken consent seriously when it is the individual patient with his or her doctor, but it's very much harder to have it taken seriously when it's a complicated consent form. And there are very strong international requirements for such consent. For example, the Declaration of Helsinki, I think the first uh, version was 1948, and it sets up standards. It's a post-Nuremberg document. We all understand why that was needed. But uh, over the years, people have, uh, you know, in all good faith, tried to make it better and better and better, added more and more clauses and complexities, so that now they have a clause which says that the research subject should, please, I ask you, understand the financial arrangements underpinning the research. Well, sorry, most of us can't do that. So we are making consent bogus by, by trying to stretch it to things that it can't be stretched to do. So what's the solution? And certainly in the digital world, have we, have we gone so far that we can't go back? How do we tackle some of these issues? I think we ought to recognize that consent is probably the right solution for relationships between the individual doctor and the individual patient, or the team of doctors and the individual patient. It is probably not the right solution for highly complex research projects where people cannot be expected to understand it. So you have to take alternative measures. Consent is, after all, not the only one. And you have to have a regulator who vets the research protocols, which, by the way, we do. And so I think greater clarity about when consent is feasible and when it's not feasible would stand us all in good stead. So one of the things that's emerged over the last 30 years is a significant problem of the trustworthiness of the information and the lack of accountability of where that's come from and who it's come from. What are the key issues behind that? Well, to judge trustworthiness is pretty demanding, as a matter of fact. I think it's demanding in most fields. We find it demanding in everyday life. It's a matter of working out whether the other person is trustworthy. And, of course, the untrustworthy will try to conceal that and try to fool us. So there are various steps that can be taken. One is to slow things down. There's a reason why we don't allow people to do very complicated transactions like buying a house or getting married in a jiffy because there's quite a lot to consider. You have to be clear about what the commitment is on both parties. So uh, judging trustworthiness is hard. I think there's also a lot of tendency to assume that when someone is untrustworthy, it's only the fakers, the fraudsters, and so on. But actually, we have to worry about a lot of other things if people 
people are to be judged trustworthy, we have to pay attention, for example, to the standard of what their performance. Are they competent? Are they honest? Are they reliably honest and competent? And those questions are quite complicated, take a bit of time to answer, and we have to consider them, and we have to, to rely very often on indirect evidence and public institutions to help us judge those. And do you feel that we're going in the right direction, or do you feel that we're spinning out of control? I think it's probably different in different fields. That's to say there are a lot of people around who think that greater complexity, more documentation, more formality is going to sort it out. I'm not sure that that's the right way to go, but it's just different with the different things that we have to place and refuse trust for. But I think asking those simple questions, is the other party honest? How am I judging that? Is the other party competent? How am I judging that? And are they reliably honest and competent or are they a bit erratic? That gives us a good start. Yes, it is sometimes, of course, difficult to get the answers to those questions, but those are the, definitely the right sort of questions. Yes, it's very difficult to get the answers and the more technically complex, technically complex uh, an area, the harder. So moving away slightly from trustworthiness, you've seen over the last few years a number of new emerging technologies. Some of those might have the potential to interfere with our rights. Are there any technologies that you see either coming along or, or just released that are concerning in terms of the rights of the individual? I think that my focus would be not just on the technologies, but on the control of the technologies. And if I had to put my finger on one issue that worries me, it is that many of these technologies are deployed by parties whom we cannot identify. And that is particularly so for digital technologies. Anonymity is an enormous feature of the digital landscape uh, so that you don't know who is going to control the information that you provide or whom it's going to reach. And the digital world at present is dominated by online advertising companies. I mean, that they call themselves tech companies, but advertising is how they make their money. And yet they are not subject to the regulation that is in any regulation that is at all comparable to that which we use for print advertising. If you advertise in the UK in print, you have to have an imprint. It has to be possible to tell who put this ad there, and then you can probably infer who paid for it. You know in whose interest it was done. You don't know that with online content, and indeed many people don't really realise when it is advertising. What do we do about this? How do we solve this problem? Oh, Gavin, you ask me the most difficult possible question. How do we solve it? I think, you know, if I were thinking big, but I doubt this is politically feasible, I would look back nearly a century and consider the role of antitrust legislation in the first place, where but the, the tech companies are very big and many of them have virtual monopolies in the areas where they, they operate and also buy up startups in those areas so that there isn't even the discipline of competition.
in some cases. But, but that's not the only thing that we need. I think we also need to find a form of regulation that works. And there, I think, many people are stuck. It's interesting that over the last year, some of the tech companies have changed their tune. And they, whereas they used to say, no, it would be a violation of freedom of expression to regulate us, uh, they're now saying, mm, we do need regulation. I was very struck by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, who said about 18 months ago that he had had the greatest hope for the web and he thought it should be uh, free for people to access and so on, but that it had been turned into an engine of uh, that achieved disastrous things. And he is working on trying to change that. Well, so a lot of people, but we have to realize where we are. And disinformation travels as easily and as readily as correct information. But the, those who see and hear it have much less capacity to judge it and correct it. That's absolutely true. We've come to the end of our time. Baroness O'Neill, thank you very much. Gavin, great to see you. And, and thank you very much. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.